came in this morning and um, more than likely you've probably dealt with the effects of um, living in a lost and broken world and um, I don't know what that means for you but uh, you're here I uh, would expect expecting to hear from God expecting to um, see him come and meet you wherever uh, it is and whether those things that you're dealing with maybe they're external um, you know need for Jesus for healing need for Jesus for provision need for Jesus at work in your marriage uh, need for Jesus at work in your um, your friendships um, or it might be within your own soul your own sins have been made aware to you and the just conviction of the spirit has just shown you that man you got a lot going on. And Jesus says, I'm here for it all. And we can run to Jesus. And so we can give our lives to him. That's why we can just let go of all of those things. So whether it's those problems and those challenges that might be facing you outside of this room, out there in the world, or perhaps uh, something just in your own heart, in your spirit, you're wrestling with, give that over to Jesus. He invites you. And I expect that you came here so that you could hear Jesus say, give it over to me. My yoke is easy. Let's pray that that would be true. Lord, we come, and I don't know where each of these dear ones are, the, the challenges that they, they might be facing, the, the sin that exists in all of our lives, and just the brokenness that we might have dealt with this week, but I do know that you... You call us here to be reminded of your grace and your mercy. To be reminded of your great love for us. So I pray that every soul in this room that is just weighted down with just trying to make our way through this life, would you encourage us today, Lord? Would you lift our weary heads let today just be a day of rest as we surrender as we just sang to you. We surrender our lives to you, Lord. We surrender all of the brokenness to you. We surrender our sins, our mistakes, our misplaced joys. We surrender all of those things to you, Lord, and we, we want more of you. So we come to you now with our hearts open, our hands open, ready to receive from you, Lord. We surrender it all to you, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone this morning that's struggling to let go, struggling to just turn over their lives to you, trying to hold firm, would you, would you just release that grip their grip on whatever is holding them back from just giving their lives to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Minister to us. Strengthen us for our good and for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can be seated.
My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Parks Church, and so glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our study in Ephesians. If uh, you have not been uh, with us over these last uh, few weeks, um, we began in Ephesians just maybe, I guess this might be a month ago now, this might be our fourth message in um, this book, and so you can jump right in. Uh, we're still in chapter one, and last week the Word reminded us that um, really what it meant to be saved. When we use that language and we talk about salvation or being saved, um, what does that mean? And we understand that it means that we are saved from the wrath of God against sin, which would be rightly due to us if it weren't for Jesus. That's what we are saved from. And those of us, if we are found in Him, we said from Ephesians 1, Verses 11 through 14, if we're found in Him, we've been saved from death and made alive. So to be in Him means that we are completely transformed. Nothing of the old is left. The new has come, 2 Corinthians says. It means that we're new creations. It means also that we have been united with Him in the body of Christ. As we are united with Christ, we are united together as a body of Christ. This is His body. And so we were reminded of the importance and the value of the local church. And it also means if we are in Him, that we are totally satisfied in Jesus. All of the idols, those small gods that vie for our attention in various ways, we're reminded are nothing to be served. But we are satisfied completely in Christ. So if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back. You can find it on our website, uh, download our, podca our podcast, and hear that in the previous messages. But today, we begin with essentially a new prayer. So as you might have remembered from our first couple weeks, verses 3 through 14, Paul is blessing the Lord, and it's essentially almost like a, prayer, a, a song of prayer, or just exulting in the Lord, praising God, blessing God for what he had done in the lives of the believers in Ephesus. And he's, and, and he's praising God for salvation. He's praising God for how he chose them and adopted us and, and led us to this place. And so today, beginning in verse 15, as Stacy read for us, he turns and he now begins to pray a prayer for the Ephesians. So before praying a prayer of blessing to God, just sort of acknowledging God's work in the lives of the Ephesians, now he is specifically looking at them, and although he recognizes what God has already done, that they have grown up in the faith, they have matured, they know the Lord, they understand salvation, he, he sees the word has had work in their life. He now turns, and his heart is directed for what he wants for the Ephesian church. He's asking the Lord to continue what he already began. Because of what you've done, Lord, I see it at work in this church, and now I pray and ask you to do even more. And he asks for these things, and so in 15 and following, we, we hear this prayer. Beginning in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Je Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease to give thanks. He says, I continuously thank God for you. And he says he intercedes for them. Why? Why does he say this? Why does he give thanks for, to, to God for them as a church? Well, he says that he gives thanks to, to God for them because he's heard of their great faith 
in the way they love one another. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love towards all the saints, I continually offer praise to God and ask him to lift you up. Word has gotten back to Paul is not in Ephesus at this time when he's writing this letter. He's obviously distant, and he sent this letter to the churches in Ephesus. And so word had gotten back to Paul about this church. And the two things that had gotten back to him, and at least the two things that he thought were worth of uh, importance and value and worthy of noting in this letter, which would ultimately, in God's sovereignty, he knew, would become the word of God to us, the two things that he highlights and he emphasizes and he grabs for us to look at are their faith and their love. Their faith in the Lord and their love toward all the saints. First, he says, their faith in Christ alone. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord. Their faith was in Christ alone for their salvation. As he noted previously in those other verses, they understood their salvation. They understood what it meant to be found in him, in Christ, to be made alive. And so he's praising God for the fact that their faith is found in Christ alone and not in all these other things. What are we so tempted to do? And, and, and the church in Ephesus, sometimes we look, by the way, we look at biblical churches and we think of them, we put them on a pedestal and we assume there surely weren't sinful people in those churches. We got a lot of sinful people in today's churches. But back then, because the Bible was written about them, there weren't any messed up people. No, there were plenty of messed up people. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And God's word says that all means all. And so this letter written to this church, he's acknowledging that in the, in the midst of their sinfulness, in the midst of being broken people, all of those things that we know intimately even about ourselves and our church today, they put their hope in Christ alone for their salvation. They did not look to themselves and look for other things to point to as the reason that they were righteous or found to be made alive in Christ. There was no other justification. He didn't reference, and, they, and he's praising because they weren't saying how much time they gave to their neighbor, how generous they were, how um, open-handed they were as far as serving and all of those. They didn't, he didn't point to any of those types of things. He didn't point to any type of activity or action. He says, no, I praise God for your faith in Christ alone, for your salvation. Faith in Christ to sustain them. Now, when we think of this, as we look back to the text previously, we know that faith was something that was received. Faith was received by this church. These saints in Ephesus had received, they had been adopted, chosen by God, and they had received the gift of faith to put their hope in Christ alone. But guess what happens, friends? Faith that is received leads to faith that is in action and does something. Faith that when we receive faith and we believe it, it goes forward. So the Ephesians had been saved by grace through faith, but they had given, they had received this gift of faith and that's what is a source of all genuine belief. But that faith that was given to them became faith that they trusted in, which caused them to be bold as they pressed forward in whatever God called them to do. They had received faith, and then they had stepped out in faith. 
And what did that faith look like? How, what was the action item? If we were to say, how do we know they had faith? What was this practice of faith that they, once they received it, that caused them to believe and trust in it and, and stake their lives on that faith? It was the fact that they loved others. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love, and here specifically, he gets very specific, toward all the saints. Their faith in action led them to have a love for all the saints, all the people of God, not just in their own local context of Ephesus or the, very, the region of Ephesus, but all the saints. They had a deep love for the people of God. And the word that he uses here for love, this is a word, it's the agape. Some of you might remember if you have heard or done a study, maybe you've been a part of other churches that have uh, uh, let you know that in biblical context and language, there's various forms of love. The word love is, can be translated in different ways, but this is a love, this agape love, it's a love that chooses to love love unconditionally. Amen. It's not an emotional love. It's not a love that is temporary and just sort of more along the lines of lust in our language. It is a love that says, I choose no matter what to be intentional and to love you unconditionally. A love that is motivated not with uh, looking outward to what the world does to me or for me or with me or all of those sorts of things, but a love that sprouts from within starts in the depth of their soul and says, I love and I choose to love unconditionally, irregardless of what anything else these other saints do. That's the type of love that these people had. Guess what? That's the love of God. That's a love that mirrors God. And that's a love that we are called to. Do you want to know why? Uh, there's plenty of verses that talk about unity in the church. Paul spends a lot of time speaking on unity in the church and, and, and pushes back and fights against anything that would create divisions within the church. But one of the sources of that unity is this. It's that we choose to love all of the saints from within our own hearts, not contingent upon what they do or do not do for us. That's what the church does. We choose to love one another, even when we fail one another, even when the love is not reciprocated in the way that we think. When we fail to love one another as we, and the golden rule, do unto others as you, know, you want to be done unto you, all right? When we fail to do that, we still love. We go forward and we choose to love. And that's the type of love that this church had. This is the word that had gotten back to Paul about who they were. And of course, because of that, their love was commendable. And it leaves us with the question, do we love well? Do we love all? Is that what we're known for? Our love? Are we known more for our love or what we are for or against. We need to be known for our love. That's the love that seeps out into the world. That's the love that drifts back to a man who's on a completely other part of the world, and yet he hears from all the saints about this church that loves the way that God loves people. You know, hate rules our culture. Our culture is completely divided. We take stands on everything. What if the church stood up and said that we love all of the saints 
And we love and we want to be known for our love and we want to lead with our love so that all of the other positions that we might find ourselves taking down below, lesser things, most of all, we're known for the way we love. That's the type of love that God would have us live out. That's the type of love that when the world that is constantly at war with one another looks around and says, how is it possible that amongst this gathered body of people where I see such great diversity in all sorts of things, whether it's beliefs, ethnicity, all the, you know, socioeconomic and all those, there is a deep love for one another. That's the type of love that is noticed. Jesus gave us this instruction, by the way. This church was just being faithful in who Jesus had called them to be. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved them unconditionally. And he said, they will know you are my disciples by what political party you affiliate with. They will know you are my disciples by how you use your money. They will know you are my disciples by who you associate with. They'll know you're my disciples by the part of town you live in. They'll know you are my disciples by your personal habits. No, he didn't say any of those things. Those things can be a byproduct of many other things, but what he says is they will know you are my disciples by your love. Yes. Your love for all the saints. John 13 is where he says that. The byproduct of our salvation is that we, are, we interact with the world differently because our hope is not found in being accepted and we are not found rejected when we aren't accepted by men. Our hope is found in who we are in Christ. And our identity rooted firmly in Christ allows us to know who we are, to know where our hope lies, and allows us to interact with the world in a completely different way than people who don't know the Lord. I heard this asked before, and it's a rather rhetorical question, and sometimes it's worthy. But could you be accused of being a Christian by the way you love, by the actions that you take with your neighbor, with your coworker? The sum of Christian life is living here as it gives us in verse 15, living with faith and love. We love one another. So in these two things, the, the church is living this out well. And so we might think to ourselves, well, if they are doing that well, if they are living with faith and love so well that it's getting, the word is getting back, you know, thousands of miles across the world and all of the churches are hearing about how well this church is doing, is there really anything else they need to do? If we found ourselves, and we don't do this perfectly, but as we strive towards living with faith and loving one another well, is there a point at which we might just say, okay, we've arrived, we're, we're kind of, we're good, yeah, we'll, we'll just end there? No, Paul has a further request for them. It seems that, yes, they are living with faith and love, and they're doing all of the things that they should do, but Paul asked that the saints would grow, would continue to grow in what? Their knowledge of Christ. And he also asked that they would grow and have greater spiritual vision in verse 17 and 18. He asks this, by the way, 
because of the immeasurable richness of who Christ is. When we understand Christ, his love, his power, his identity, and ours in him is a well that we can never get to the bottom of. We can continually mine for more and more and more. And we're going to get to that next week. But in verse 17 and 18, even though they're doing so well and living out their uh, life of faith and loving the saints, he asked for two things for them. He asked the Lord, would you allow them this? What is it? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So first he asked that they would have knowledge of him. He asked that they would have wisdom and revelation as they know Christ more. To know Christ is to have saving faith. Jesus said, now this is eternal. This is his words, Jesus' own words from John 17. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Knowing Christ is salvation. It leads to salvation. And so if we know Christ, we have eternal life. If we do not know Christ, we do not have eternal life. That's a simple equation that Jesus gives for us. And so if we have this saving faith, it comes from a knowledge of who Christ is. Think about the two thieves on a cross, hanging there side by side with Jesus. One is mocking him. And the other says to the third, don't you know who it is that you're speaking to? Don't you know who this is that hangs with us? How did he know? Because the Spirit of God gave him the, the faith to know that this was the Messiah. And that knowledge led to faith. And with that little bit of faith that the Spirit gave to him, guess what he asked Jesus? Will you remember me? He had the boldness. That faith led to a boldness to ask the Savior, ask God who he knew who he was. Ask him, will you remember me? And Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise. That faith was a root of knowing who he was. To know Christ is not just knowledge of facts. You might be inspired to know that I've met Jason Garrett before. We were even once or even more than a handful of times probably in the same church. I know he talks a lot about process and three phases. I know all these things about him, but I don't know him. I've never met him personally. I know he doesn't have good clock management skills in the fourth quarter, but I don't know him. I don't know who he is. I, I just know of him. I have a lot of facts in my mind about him. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. Growing up, I went to church every Sunday and most Sunday evenings and all the other times that the church was open, I was there. But I've told you many times, if you haven't heard this before, it wasn't until later in life when I was a teenager, I was 18 years old, an adult essentially. No, I guess you're a teenager and adult for that little brief window of time. Why? I knew all there was to know about Jesus, so I thought. 
I knew who he was. I'd heard his stories. I had sang his song. I stood on the stages of churches and sang because he lived on Easter Sunday morning from the time that I was five until I was 12. But I'll just tell you, I didn't know him. I knew of him. I had a head knowledge of what he had done. I knew many of the stories. I even knew many of the stories that pointed to him from the Old Testament. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit of God moved in my life and drew me to him that I knew him. And that knowledge led to faith. There are many who claim Christianity because they cognitively know and accept even the facts of Jesus' life. But to truly be in him is to know Christ through a genuine and real relationship with him. Time with him. You know what this goes in counter to? The world calls us to know ourselves. To thine own self be true. Go find your truth. But the word calls us to know Christ. Paul wants this church that is living out with great faith and love for one another to know Christ even more. He asked that they would have revelation and wisdom to understand Christ all the more, to know him personally. And so as we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is, this is what happens. Rather than our hearts being aligned to wonder about ourselves and thinking of ourselves more, as we know Christ more, he becomes greater and we become less. And the more that he is greater in our lives and the more that we are less in our own minds and the way we live, the more we will automatically live for him. We will be guided by living for him. Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's prayer to the Philippian church, that he wanted to know him and the power of his resurrection, to be able to share in his sufferings, to be hated by men, to be accused, to be rejected, all of those things come from a deep knowledge of who Jesus is. I encourage you to read your Bibles wanting to know more of Jesus, not out of religious obligation. Listen to this sermon and any other sermon that you listen to with a desire to know him more, to grow in understanding of who Jesus is. Pray and ask him to show you more of who he is, to reveal himself to you. All of these things are given by the Spirit of God, and he gives us more and more as we ask, as we plead with him to reveal more of himself to us. So, verse 17, he asked that they would know Christ, and they would grow in their knowledge of him. And that would be our prayer as a church, that we would grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. And then he asked in verse 18 that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Again, that you may know more knowledge, what the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. So he says he wants them to be enlightened. Now, of course, he uses some curious language here. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. As far as I know medically, my heart does not have eyes. Our hearts don't see. But what Paul is using this figurative language to describe is that our eyes are what guide us. 
My eyes tell me that if I was walking, I would need to step around this podium. My eyes tell me that there's a step here that I need to be cautious against if I was going to keep moving forward. My eyes tell me all of the things that I can see and sense around me. A lot of that comes through my vision. And so what Paul is saying is he wants the eyes of our hearts to be opened up so that we can see life, so that our hearts, because our hearts are what guide us. We all know it's what we feel in the depth of our hearts is what leads us through this life. Our hearts are like our eyes as far as we move around, spiritually speaking. This is why also we know if we follow our own hearts, we will be deceived because our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are flesh. But if our hearts understand and want more and more of Christ, then our hearts will be guided by that desire. He's asking God, would you awaken their hearts to not be led by their flesh and not be led by the sinfulness that reigns in them, but to be led by your spirit? Would you enlighten their hearts, Lord, so that as they move around, they would know which step to take. They would know when to step to the side. They would know when there's caution because there's something in front of them. They would know when to back away and how to move so that their hearts would guide all of that because our hearts is what leads us. He wants them to know in spiritual terms the true gift of Christ. Again, when we really understand who Christ is, when we have sincere knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done for us, it's then that our hearts guide us in the proper way. And what does he say that we, we, we have received in Christ? First, he says that we have hope. He wants us to know, again, verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's referencing back to his praise of God in 3 through 14, the hope of salvation, the hope of the fact that you have been chosen and adopted as sons and daughters of God. If whatever it is that you're dealing with is we just walked in and we said, Lord, will you help us to surrender our lives to you? Whatever those things are, whether it's internal in your own flesh, whether it's some external circumstances, you have hope because why? Because you're a son of the most high God. You're a daughter of the king. Those things are true about who you are and they give you hope that sustains you even in the midst of the ups and downs of this life. How do we have that hope? How do we grow in that hope? We know more and more of Jesus. We understand him and who he is more. We recognize our identity that is found in him more and more. And that's a wrestling match. I wake up in the morning. I crawl out of bed. Am I a husband? Am I a father? Am I a pastor? Am I a friend? Am I a neighbor? Am I any? I got a million things that are at me, and I'm wondering which one do I do first? Which one do I prioritize? And of course, Scripture gives us some instructions on that. But if I forget in all of those responsibilities that I am a child of God, I am going to lose hope because I'm going to fail in all of those other identities. That's why the identity that we have in Christ must be foundational. And that's why Paul began this letter speaking so intently about who we are in Christ. So he wants us to know the hope. He also wants us to know the riches. What does he say? 
having your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God clearly, based on who we are in Christ, values us. God values you. You are his treasure. Jesus would say, you're his prized possession. He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He put the sun in the sky this morning. He created everything that we see, and everything that we see is his. And yet, what does he say? You are my treasure. You are who I care about. Above all of these other things, you. And that's why I sent my son to redeem you so that I could adopt you as my son or my daughter. When we rightly understand that, when we see who we are, we understand the riches of God. God owns it all, and he sees us as his treasure. And third, he says that he wants us to know the power, that your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that will secure you until the end. Have you lost hope? Are you unsure about your future? Do you not know how valued you are by God? His promise is that the same power that allowed Jesus to take his life up again is the power that holds you and will hold you and secure you till the end. That's something that we can rejoice in. And this is the knowledge. This is the enlightenment that Paul wants us to know, to grow in, to understand. This is the hope that we have. So we also, let us be people who live our faith out. Having received faith, let us believe in that faith enough to go and do all of the things that God would have us do, to love well and to love unconditionally and to love others, all the saints. Let that be who we are. And then let us seek in everything that we can to know Christ, to pursue that knowledge of him so that we might know the hope, the riches, and the power of him. We're going to respond to the word this morning by participating in the Lord's table. Jesus left us with this ordinance to remember this good news of who we are. That despite our sins, despite all of the things that we might have dealt with, Jesus has prepared a table for us. And he welcomes us to his table. So what we're going to do, I'm going to pray in just a moment, but before I do that, Our worship team is going to come back up. And this is how we will receive from the Lord's table today. As they're leading us, we're going to just respond with worship. We're going to stand and sing to Jesus. And perhaps you just need to spend some time, even before you stand, just seated there, your heart and head bowed, just asking the Lord how you might know him more. Perhaps you need to put your faith in Jesus, his finished work on the cross on your behalf, and you haven't, you've, never, you've never believed, but today the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you, 
and telling you and affirming in you that, yes, you believe in me. What I did for you, what I did on the cross was for you. Just take that moment in prayer and spend that time with the Lord. But as we are singing and as the Spirit leads you, we'll come to the front and we'll receive from the Lord's table. We have two tables here at the front and we have two tables at the back. Our gluten-free table is right here. The small bowl uh, up here on the, to my right is uh, for anyone who needs a gluten-free diet. But just come and receive. We'll come and receive from the table, then we'll go back to our seats and we'll, we'll take communion together. But don't let this time pass. Be, be attentive to what the Spirit of God is speaking. Again, I don't know where you all are individually. I can't, I can't know every detail of your lives. But listen right now. Take some time to listen to the Lord. And then in response, stand and worship Jesus. Come and receive from his table, and we'll come back together for the, to receive communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the promise of your word that says you set a table before us. And this table that we will receive from this morning is just a symbol of that. A reminder of how much you love us. A reminder of the gospel. This table is for all who believe to think back and know that the God of the universe treasures you, loves you. So Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would just speak clearly to our hearts, speak exactly what we need to hear. I do pray that we would be a church that is known for our faith in you, Lord Jesus, and known for our love for all the saints. We need to know you more and more and more. We will never get to the depth of the riches of who you are, Jesus, but we desire to know you more. And so even in this moment, would you help us to know you more? If there's anyone in this room that wants to just understand more about Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd speak to them. You'd give them the courage to come and talk to me after the service. Let today be the day of salvation for anyone who does not know you, is far from you. Thank you, Thank you Jesus, Jesus, for who you for are. Who you are. We, worship we worship you. you. And I pray and these I things, things in Jesus' mighty name.
this life bring suffering Lord I will remember what Calvary has brought for me both now and his goodness to us through his work on the cross that while we were yet sinners God loved us enough that he sent his son to go and lay down his life for us so that we might be reconciled to him so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters so no matter what the world says we sing of God's goodness to us because we have hope we know the future And that leads to great joy. And so that's why he left us with this supper, that we take this um, communion. We do it in remembrance so that we never get too far away forgetting who we are. We can't ever drift too far that we, we lose sight of who it is that Jesus is. And so Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says this from chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
we proclaim the Lord laid down his life. But guess what? He will come again. He took it back up again, and he will surely take us to himself. And so we drink this, remembering that the price has been fully paid, and we have eternal life and hope that will not fade. Do this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for your goodness to us. We rejoice as we remember your body broken, your blood shed for us. We were unworthy and you were completely worthy and yet you took on our shame when you laid down your life for us. I thank you for that. I pray that that truth, that hope, the knowledge of who you are, Lord Jesus, would propel us forward this week, even in the hours ahead, to be a people who live with great faith and love for everyone. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city, about a person.